What's up, everyone? This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. So this is the second episode that we've got, or a second live stream today. I uh, hope you enjoyed the first one with Shannon Andrus. And uh, yeah, she was talking a little bit about, you know, or we were talking about um, anxiety and depression and how that sort of manifests itself, uh, you know, in life and in how she kind of dealt with hers and got through that. Uh, this episode, I'm talking to Chris Newby. And she is the author of a book called Bitten about uh, Lyme disease and sort of how how it came about and how it's been weaponized. And we're going to talk a little bit about, well, hopefully a lot about this subject because it's really interesting to me um, because we don't, like I said, we don't really, I don't hear, I haven't heard a whole lot about it in uh in uh in the in the west coast so and maybe it's just because i'm looking in the wrong places or just uninformed but i hope to be more informed after the end of this conversation so after these messages uh we'll be right back sean dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a long-time methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. Hey there. How are you, Chris? Fun. Thanks for inviting me on. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. I'm happy to hang out with you this afternoon. Let me move us back here a little bit. God, I feel like I'm so off today. Like I said, I, I, I flew to Florida yesterday and like I tried to throw my, my studio together. I brought all my equipment with me and today it just, it just feels off for some reason. That's huh, weird. Yeah. Well, I'm in a rental now and getting the internet up took a week and a half. It's just really difficult when it's somebody else's wiring. Yeah. You're in, uh, you're in Utah. Yeah. So yeah. How, how do you, how do you like it there so far compared to California? Well, I'm in Park City, which is fairly cosmopolitan. Uh, I see some of my neighbors with second homes in the coffee shop in Park City. Uh, it's just a really a beautiful place. Uh, and, um, uh, it's close to nature. You have moose wandering around your yards, uh, wombats, not wombats, uh, marmots. It's just really a nice place. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I've heard about Park City before. I was just in um, Salt Lake uh, in December, I think uh, mid-December, um, looking checking out a place called the other side academy there which is a therapeutic community that i went and visited to kind of as sort of my market research for the nonprofit organization that i'm start that i started myself here in uh 
well, not here where I'm at now, but in California where, where I live. So, you know, what's cool is that I just realized today, I looked at your Instagram, you were, you've been on uh, the ripple effect podcast too. Yeah. With, uh, Ricky. Yeah. 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 Ricky Verandis. I've been on his show. He's been on, uh, he's, well, we actually did a swap cast, uh, where we both interviewed somebody. Uh, he's been on my show. I've been on the union of the unwanted and I've been on, uh, and I've had Sam Tripoli on the show and like all those people I kind of run around with that he has on the, uh, on the, on the union of the unwanted. I was on Sam's uh, podcast too. And that's a fun crew. Oh yeah. Sam is, Sam's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So So my my job is to creep people out with eight legged bugs, (laughs) like stories you can't even believe that will blow your mind. But also my book, uh, which is written is a lot about uh, hope and redemption. Uh, The main character uh, is on a track where he's developing biological weapons and he changes courses and helps the patients who have the disease and who are without hope. So it's nice. Yeah, that's awesome. So we're going to, we're going to get into that right now. Um, Danny, as I said, I'm in a noisy cafe, so I can't hear you, but I just like to say, I love the new look brother. Well, this look isn't going to stay around. This is hotel look. Uh, and when I get back to my green screen, it'll be business as usual, but thank you, Danny. Um, so now let's, let's talk a little bit about ticks. <laughs> My, my favorite insect and disease, Lyme disease. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to, I used to run around in the, in the hills. Uh, I grew up in Pinole, California. So there's a bunch of hills back there. And I would remember my mom would always, you know, make sure that I shook out my clothes and everything else when I would come out of the hills and being in the, uh, in the weeds and everything. And I've found a couple, but I've never gotten bit by one. I've had dogs that have, and like you tell you to like, put a lighter to their butt and they'll, and then twist them counterclockwise. And so they don't break off the head inside. Well, that, well, there'd be like public health people screaming if they heard that. Cause actually if you put a lighter to their butt, they may regurgitate whatever uh, pathogens or diseases they have in their gut. So it's better to just take uh, tweezers and try to get them at the junction of the skin in the mouth and pull it out as fast as possible. So, okay. They don't throw up inside of you. <laughs> okay. Well, there, there's news there. I was doing it wrong. No, al- yeah, no alcohol, no twisting, no squeezing. And actually, there are some tick-borne diseases that can just come out when you pull the tick and get into your eyes and infect you. So make sure you wash your hands after you pull out a tick too. Oh. So do they? Does that happen? Do they give your dogs Lyme disease too? Or your animals? Um, yeah, Lyme disease. Uh, Dogs can get it. People can get it. Uh, Lyme disease, in a way, is a little overrated because there are probably 20 other germs that can make you sick that are carried in a tick. And sometimes you can get more than one of those germs at a time after a tick bite. Uh, Usually the experts say it takes a day or two for the tick to transmit Lyme once it's buried in your skin. But there are some tick-borne diseases that can be transmitted in a couple hours if the germs are in the saliva of the tick. Oh, wow. I didn't know that either. That's kind of scary. <laughs> so like, how did, I mean, you think that, I mean, some people talk about ticks being biological weapons and man-made, you know, that it was done in a lab and, and, you know, released onto the, to the public. I mean, 
we're kind of getting a little bit ahead of, of the conversation, but what, like for those that don't know what Lyme disease is, can you kind of give a brief description of it and, and like, what is it? What is it? Where does it come from? Obviously beside ticks. So Lyme disease is a bacterium and it's uh, corkscrew shaped like a, a, you know, a um, wine opener. Uh, it is carried in the mid gut of a tick and when the tick buries its head in you and starts uh, taking a blood meal, uh, the contents of the tick's gut goes into your bloodstream. And then this bacteria, and also there are many other bacteria and viruses, can go into your bloodstream. And then uh, when the tick bites you, the saliva uh, suppresses your immune system for about a week. It also puts a numbing agent in there, and an agent that keeps you the sore from clotting over with platelets, blood platelets. So... Anyways, when a tick bites you, it has a week, whatever it regurgitates into your body, there's a week lead time where your immune system suppressed, you can get sick. Lyme disease was discovered in 82. There was this, uh, this outbreak around Lyme, Connecticut, Long Island, uh, Massachusetts, where a lot of people were getting super sick, their, their joints were getting swollen. And so when we discovered it, it was decided that it could be cured with a few weeks of antibiotics. And that's a real controversial thing about that disease because some people don't get better and I can get into the reasons behind that. But I never, ever would have thought that I'd become a tick-borne disease expert in 2002 when my family took a beach vacation to Martha's Vineyard right off Massachusetts. And my husband and I came back and that started our long ordeal with Lyme disease where it took us a year and uh, 10 doctors and about $60,000 to get diagnosed with Lyme disease and another tick-borne disease called babesiosis. And it was about a five-year process to get over that and get better. And um, so that's, I'm a engineer and science writer. And uh, when my family was sick, uh, that's when I started this whole research process that and, and the end product was a, a documentary on Lyme disease and then a book. So is it possible to, to get bitten by a tick and not, and it not burrow into you, but, and still get it and not know, or is it something that you're going to know because a tick is burrowed into you? Well, they, since when they bite you, there's a numbing agent, you may or may not see the tick. If it's infected with Lyme disease, there's, uh, a symptom that's absolutely 100% diagnostic. Diagnostics, it's this distinct bullseye rash uh, with a ring of red that expands over a f- days to weeks. Uh, sometimes there's a central clearing, so it looks like a bullseye, like my book back there. But sometimes it's just solid red. But the, the, the indicator is this, at the bite site, about a week later, this growing rash happens. But if the rash, like in my case, the rash was under my hairline and I never saw it, if it was there at all. Uh, Some people say it's 30 to 50%, you'll see the rash. Uh, So it's hard to diagnose. Lyme disease is super hard to diagnose because the symptoms are just like a summer flu or COVID this year. (laughs) You know, Mm. uh, fever, chills, muscle aches, crushing, crushing fatigue, you feel horrible. And what's a complication, unlike COVID, is that there isn't a really reliable test in the first month. So you have to almost wait till you get 
a, a nasty case could be chronic before the tests work. Hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, Oh my God. I would hate to, uh, it makes you not want to go anywhere out the brush where, it, where a tick is because you might catch something that, that you're, uh, going to, going to regret later. So talk a little bit about, cause I know you're, you're a, a science writer. You, you know, worked at a prestigious university. Um, what, what's the question that I want to ask you? I want I want to know how you feel about science in the present day and kind of how it pertains to the two different camps that they have in COVID right now. I don't know if you're do you know what I'm talking about? Like why why is something that's biological and should be normal for everybody? Why is there two different opinions on on this? And is it the same thing, sort of the same sort of thing that's going on with uh, Lyme disease as well? Yeah, I, I do feel like the U.S. healthcare system is a little bit broken right now. Uh, I think there were a lot of parallels with the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, how they've handled uh, Lyme disease for more than 40 years and how they handled covid the big difference is Lyme disease is sort of an invisible creeping chronic disease and COVID there's a lot of body bags and it's pretty dramatic. The not being able to breathe and loss of taste and smell with Lyme disease. It's not as straightforward for well-meaning physicians because you say, Oh, I have traveling pains. I hurt all the time. I'm tired. And people say, ha ha ha. I'm tired too. I'm old. It's just like, no, this is crushing, crushing fatigue. And you see COVID patients talk about that kind of fatigue too, brain fog. Uh, with CDC, uh, thing to know about the CDC is it was originally uh, formed after World War II as an agency looking for biological weapons attacks on the United States. So it has a very military origin. The, the medical personnel have military ranks, they have uniforms. So they're, they're there to be skeptical and they see an outbreak and they say, Oh, natural or unnatural man-made or, you know, natural. And so they have a, they wear their skeptical glasses to analyze it with the CDC. They get a lot of false alarms. So I think they become a little jaded and they don't believe that the people on the ground, we saw that with chronic fatigue, Lyme disease. Uh, you're not people of science, you're sheeple with, with CDs. Let's just compare the COVID rollout to the Lyme rollout. With COVID, CDC came out with a test and they said, you can only use our test. We only trust our test. There was a better test that was, was available earlier in Europe. And they said, no, our test is great. It turned out a couple months into the epidemic. They said, oops, our test isn't that great. So we lost a lot of ground contact, contract tracing where we could have you know, circled the wagons around the COVID outbreak, but it was too late then. And then um, with Lyme disease, the testing is flawed too. For some reason, we're still stuck with this really uh, not very accurate screening test for Lyme disease. It's a two-step process. So in many cases, you have to go to the doctor twice. Uh, it doesn't work in uh, the first month. Unlike COVID, you can test right away and see if you have it. And 
then disease tracking wasn't very good in the beginning for, and it's still pretty bad for Lyme disease. And then uh, CDC was really slow to listen to what the patients were saying and the doctors, frontline doctors about what the symptoms are. They were saying, oh, it's all the scratchy throat, the dry cough, the lung thing. When early on patients were saying, well, loss of taste and smell is no, no, that's, you know, and now that's one of the hallmarks of, of COVID. And with Lyme disease, there's still a really inaccurate symptom list of what patients are experiencing in the field, especially for the long-term effects and what the CDC said that says the disease is. So, so in your, in your research, do you, do you believe that this was a biological weapon gone bad? Well, it started with uh, two people involved in the biological weapons program saying, yes, ticks were involved in biological weapons. One was Willie Bergdorferi, who discovered the Lyme disease organism in 82, or published on it in 82. And uh, the other one was a black ops CIA officer who told me, he wasn't a CIA officer, he was black ops operational dude who said, I did a lot of really bad things in Vietnam in the sixties, but the, the strangest thing I ever did was drop ticks on Cuban sugar cane workers to try and disable massive amounts of, of workers there with these poison ticks uh, so that they could damage the economy of Cuba. And hopefully the people would rise up and oust Fidel, the communist dictator. <laughs> so it started from there, but you know, I if you're trying to, write a factual, factual book, you can't just take what someone says at face value, even though Willie Bergdorfer, he's Willie Bergdorfer was a NIH scientist, career scientist, great reputation, but still you don't know if they have an agenda or if they just like to fictionalize. So then that started a five-year process where I tried to verify what they said with uh, newly declassified documents in archives. I went to about 20 archives and then also uh, I got a hold of some uh, lab notebooks or lab pages from Willie Bergdorfer I from when he, when he really did the investigation. But back to the original question, is Lyme disease a biological weapon? I would say, I don't think it was Lyme disease that that bacteria I told you about. I think it was another germ that the, the biological weapons group was was working on, incapacitating agent. And I think that got out and they used the Lyme spirochete as a misdirection to hide what the other organism is. And I don't think they've fully disclosed what that is yet. And the book goes into which organism I think it is, which is a rickettsia. It's a cousin to Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Hmm. So, I mean, you, some of the, I mean, it's, 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 because every time I, I, I even think about it, it, it's it's hard to to swallow that our own government is capable of doing horrendous things to its to its citizens, right? I mean, and it's, I mean, I guess you could say that. Well, you know, there's no you know real evidence that you know that these things that you're saying are true, but I mean, all you have to do is just go back to one that we can you know, say that did happen was, you know, the Iran Contra thing where we brought in, you know, Oliver North and, and, and Reagan that 
that administration brought in cocaine with the CIA and they infiltrated the streets and flooded with crack cocaine. I mean, that's true. It did happen. It's, it's verifiable. And so when you can think of things in that, those terms, then it, it makes it really easy to understand that, yeah, you know, this government is capable of doing horrendous things to its citizenry. Well, yeah. And the, if you look at where the biological weapons program was run out of, it's Fort Detrick in Maryland. And with Fort Detrick was run by the army and it had an embedded CIA unit. And that's where the LSD experiments originated. The Manchurian candidate mind control experiments uh, directed by the CIA. That's where they developed agent orange as a defoliant for Vietnam in that same unit. And uh, they combined the defoliants with biological agents a lot of times. And they, they did the, what people don't realize is the biological weapons program was almost as big as the Manhattan project for nuclear weapons. And those two groups were competing for congressional funding. And so they were trying to outdo each other in the biological weapons program. They were saying, Oh, this is a, uh, biological weapons are poor man nuke and they're untraceable. You know, if you drop poison ticks on the Cubans, it's not like you can take a fingerprint off uh, a ticks back or, or you can take some explosive casings and say, Oh, this is American or this is Russian. So it was the perfect stealth weapon for them. And then it was also a lot of times you would combine it with uh, the biological weapons uh, with conventional warfare. So you would drop the ticks a month earlier, and then you would drop conventional weapons. So people would be sick. You'd uh, constrain medical resources. Um, so it, it it's sort of diabolical. I, I would I would read some of these Pentagon reports where they were trying to get funding from Congress, and they would say, "Oh, tick-borne tularemia. It's a little bacteria." They at that time they weren't mixing it with ticks. They would grow it in large stainless steel like beer brewing tanks, tularemia, and they would uh, grow it with yeast and sugar, and then they would freeze dry it and make it into a powder so that it could be aerosolized and sprayed from planes, boats, uh, scuba men, buoys. They, they did one open air test with a bacteria that they thought was harmless, but later we found out it wasn't. They mounted sprayers on the back of trucks and went through the Pennsylvania turnpike tunnels and then had sniffers at the other end to see uh, what the, what the dosage of the bacteria was on the other end of the tunnel. Mm. Just thousands and thousands of open air experiments. Uh, they thought they were being safe, but in hindsight, they weren't. <laughs> yeah. So what, what you were talking about is plausible deniability. You know, they can say, well, we don't know. I mean, there's, you can't prove it. Right. Mm. Um, and then also too, uh, oh, it's so crazy, man. And so, and, and this is you're talking about like Vietnam and, and there's Agent Orange, and but I mean, all of these people and these agencies popped up after World War II and Operation Paperclip, right? Because all of the Nazis, basically, the I mean, for people that don't know, the Nazis won. <laughs> They won the war. 
because they ended up getting dispersed to different areas. Russia took some of them. Uh, we took a bunch of them. Uh, a bunch went to Argentina. A bunch went to Antarctica, which you know we don't know what's going on up there, but there's something going on up there. Um, so, and I mean, what could you say? I mean, is is our is our world nothing what we think it is? Well, that's. I think that's why books like this are valuable. So we can put the history into context and learn from our mistakes. So in this book, I go through sort of a brief history of the bug-borne bioweapons program. So it's putting plague in fleas so we can drop fleas on our enemy. There's a bunch of experiments on that that I document. Putting uh, this really deadly Trinidad agent virus into uh, mosquitoes so that we can drop mosquitoes on our our enemies. There's rumors that we put infected lice in little paper packets and threw it down foxholes in in, uh, Vietnam. We did that. Uh, We did feather bombs with hog cholera on feathers. So anyways, we're we're messing with nature and somehow human hubris is that, oh, there can't be blowback. We can control nature. We can understand it. And you think, oh, that's just the Cold War and we don't do that stuff anymore. But you know, recently someone genetically engineered mosquitoes uh, to make the males sterile and they released them. And I thought, well, there'll be less of these, this breed of mosquitoes that spread Zika and dengue. But the following year, they, they released these sterile mos- male mosquitoes. And the next year there were more mosquitoes than ever. So my theme is nature is complex. Nature always wins. And we just, if we humans think we're going to control something, uh, for example, uh, gypsy moths, you know, oh, we'll just spray gypsy moths with DT, DDT, not really realizing the ripple effect that would have on the entire o- ecosystem, birds, mammals, our food system. Uh, so, you know, there, I guess I have hope that with books like these, we'll learn from our mistakes, but <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Doesn't doesn't seem like it. It seems like you know the the main the main motivator is money, profit. Um, you know, corporations. It's just it's a, it's really it's really sad. Um, you know what's happening, and then you look at what's going on in the oceans, and you know the depletion of the fish and whales and all of that other stuff. It's like, man, are they are they really trying to end end our existence? <laughs> You know, and now we have CRISPR, which is our uh, ability to snip and paste RNA and DNA. And uh, so, some scientist from China goes back and clones uh, clones two female uh, girls, and he's thinking he could make them immune to a- HIV/AIDS since his parents have HIV/AIDS, and he just change like vast swatches of human DNA without like thinking about what that means down the road uh, for the human race. Mm. So did, did he, I mean, did, is there's cloned people out there now? Yeah. He cloned like Dolly, the sheep, he cloned two twin girls and uh, he's in jail in China now. And what, what, where, where are those girls at? Are they living or are they confined? Well, yeah, they're, they're living. We're living, but now they're, you know, we don't know what will happen to them down the road 
or if they have children, what will happen to their children? Because there's no way we understand every corner of our DNA and what each part does. Yeah, that reminds one me billion of base, her one billion base pairs. Oh man, that reminds me of the, uh, so remember Jurassic Park and that one scene where Jeff Goldblum is like talking about, well, you know, it, it, it's amazing that he could, but he, did he, did, did anybody ever stop to think that, you know, should they? <laughs> right. Right. So it's just like, if we know the scientists can do it, but if they can do it, doesn't mean they should. And so Jurassic Park is, I love that movie. <laughs> <It's classic. laughs> Me too. <laughs> That's one of my favorite ones, especially the part where the the theme song kicks in and they're doing and they're getting ready to come up and over. I think they're coming out of that uh, waterfall or dropping down wherever it is that they're doing. And in that big scene with all the where they just see the the dinosaurs and yeah, that was pretty pretty awesome cinematography there. But I definitely don't agree that we should be doing any of these things. You know, without I mean, almost just like I mean, you think about the vaccine. I mean, it it. I, I mean, they threw it together so fast that, it, it, in my opinion, I feel like the people that are taking it are the, the trial. Uh, yeah, it was a risk re reward trade off. So far, it's been a good bet. And the good part about the COVID outbreak is before these COVID vaccines were out, it, it, the fastest vaccine to go from concept to arms took seven years. And it was just like really burdensome red tape and bureaucracies, some of which didn't contribute to safety. It was just red tape. So we proved to ourselves that, A, all of a sudden scientists worked together because it was an a, a, a international crisis. And they removed the silos and the competitiveness a little bit. And now we know we can do vaccines faster. Uh, but... There will be collateral damage. There is no such thing as 100% safe vaccine. Scientists, scientists will admit that. Um, but it is risk rewards because COVID is just super bad. <laughs> and uh, people can die in just seven days. Uh, so it was a decision that had to be made on high, I guess. But we, we won't even know the real safety records for quite a while. Yeah, there's a lot of different different information going on around around that and different different camps. Like I said, different camps in even the medical community. Like Simone, uh, I think it's Simone Gold or Gould. She was one of the frontline doctors that was talking about you know the ivermectin and and hydroxychloroquine and all of the the therapeutics that were available. Um, I think hydroxychloroquine when you get it, it it, it, it keeps like if you start taking that then you basically it just goes in and out and you're it's not deadly and then the ivermectin you know there was a study done in argentina with you know the 800 doctors that took it and the 400 that didn't the 800 that did take the ivermectin and this was on a this was on a, a senate hearing a doctor by the name of Corey. i can't remember what his last name is but they called him dr Corey. um those 800 worked in a hospital and were, you know, around COVID didn't contract it. And in the 400 that didn't 56% of them did contract it. So there, to me, that shows you like, okay, well, that's a good bet that if you take ivermectin, you're not going to get it. I, 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 a lot of people I respect um, have been 
praising ivermectin and hydrochloroquine. Uh, I haven't read the studies myself, but I, I do think that the U.S. has like put all their eggs in the vaccine basket and haven't been paying enough attention to prevention before the symptoms get bad. And a lot of the U.S. trials on uh, hydrochloroquine were when people were already in the hospital on ventilators, and that's a bad study design. So I, I think we need to work more on prevention and then more on the long haul symptoms. I mean, my husband has some long haul symptoms. He still doesn't have his taste and smell back. And that's, that's a really losing two senses is a big deal. Yeah. That would suck to not be able to, to taste things anymore. Cause I'd love to eat. Or there was a, there was a gas leak in our neighborhood and he couldn't smell it. <laughs> there were like seven fire engines and he couldn't smell a gas leak. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's just, there's so many crazy things. And then, you know, I'm a conspiracy person. Like the people that we talk to, you know, we, we mentioned Ricky Verandas, Sam Tripoli. I mean, we all believe sort of in this conspiracy thing, you know, some of us to different spectrums of it. I mean, is it somebody who's in, in the space and you've talked to some of these people? I mean, do you think that we're out of like, that the things that we think are, are crazy or do we have a good leg to stand on to believe those things? Or is it just trying to connect dots that aren't there? Well, thank God we have a world where you can uh, express minority reports uh, and freedom of speech because for example, in academia, I was there for ten, in, in the, that milieu for 10 years it's fundamentally a peer review environment where everyone's worried that their papers won't be reviewed by their peers favorably. So that by nature makes everything very conservative and you don't, science doesn't advance as rapidly um, if people aren't willing to take chances. So you have a young scientist with bold ideas and I work with some of them at Stanford. They're just so inspirational, but there's a three strikes rule for applying for NIH grants. And, and if you are too ambitious in your goals, you will never get funding. And if you are, your grant proposals are rejected three times, then you're out and your, your functional, your promise of being an NIH uh, researcher and well-funded with a lab are just, they're over. <laughs> so uh, I think it's important that we get this, alternative studies out. Uh, so the guy, uh, the guy, the scientist in France, DDA Raoult was the first one who came out with a study on hydrochloroquine and he found it to be promising and he just got completely skewered, but he's one of the most respected scientists in France and he had over 600 publications. So uh, that that's what I mean about uh, it's dangerous if you're a scientist to be too far out in your, your hypotheses. Even when the goal is to speak the truth and, and to put things out there that need to be heard, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, it seems like money is, is, is the problem in everything because it's funding that is keeping people towing the line it's, you know, if you, if you don't do X, you don't do Y. If you, if you get too far to the left, too far to the right, you're, you know, you're screwed. And so 
that's counterproductive to what the main goal should be is what's good for us and what's good for our survival and what's good for, you know, humanity, not what's good for Dr. Fauci's pocketbook because he's got, uh, so here, here's something. Let me, let me ask you this. Do you see something wrong with, and, and correct me if I'm wrong in how I'm thinking about it, but do you, do you find problems with recent, you know, taxpayer funded research and researchers being able to patent their discoveries and their findings off of the taxpayer's dollar. And does, does that make sense how I just put that? Well, I, I noticed that problem when I was doing research for my documentary under our skin. And it's, it's about the politics and the controversy surrounding Lyme disease. And you can watch it for free on Amazon private, Prime if you have a subscription or watch it online under our skin. But anyways, that what I realized is Lyme disease was discovered in the same year as that rule that you're talking about where scientists could patent and profit from live organisms. And when it was discovered, a scientist could just uh, seek, like identify a molecule on the surface of the bacterium and say, I'm going to patent this protein that's on the surface of this bacteria. It's not like the scientists invented this. And if you, if anybody makes a, a test kit or a vaccine based on that protein on the surface of the bacteria, I get royalties for that. And if he's, that person is in the NIH, NIH gets royalties. Or if that researcher is with the university, the university gets uh, royalties. So in a way, what happened is you had a dangerous new germ, Borrelia burgdorferi and, uh, all of a sudden this new the new information about a dangerous germ is kept secret because the researchers partner with big pharma and they want to protect their intellectual property. And, uh, and so scientists, I mean, science fundamentally are little steps, incremental steps of knowledge. And if everybody's holding their little pieces of knowledge secret, then you can't make great advances. And that was what was great about COVID is, everybody shared because they knew it was so important and hopefully profits would come later. Okay. So anyways, with Lyme disease, that's what we had. The, the fundamental science was slowed down by two different groups who wanted to create vaccines. They fast tracked the vaccines for Lyme disease. I think they rushed the science and they developed a bad test that 50 years later, we're still stuck with this bad test. And it's really hard to go backwards now. Uh, like Willie Bergdorfer, who discovered the germs on camera in the documentary, said, uh, we fundamentally need to restart up with the research and uh, get fun scientists who don't know the conclusions to their experiments before they start. <laughs> That's not the way science should be done. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just seems like the whole thing is just so cloudy. You know, um, I, I, it's, it's hard to believe that anything ever gets done, you know. And there are actually um, direct links to your documentary uh, in the show notes and the description. I threw all that stuff in there. Uh, and thank you for bringing it up because I, I started getting into other stuff and didn't even mention the documentary yet. Um, but, yeah, I mean, how, how was that and what did you learn um, from doing the documentary? Because you, you have the original one and you have a sequel too, right? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't work on the sequel uh, Andy, 
Abrahams Wilson is the director and producer of that film. I worked on the first one. The second one, I'm in there because I was uh, continuing the research into sort of the corruption of Lyme disease and how it became so polarized, a lot like the COVID things. Um, what did I learn? Uh, I guess I, when my husband and I had a really bad case of Lyme disease, I thought, oh, well, just California doctors are not familiar with Lyme disease. You know, that's why it took us so long to get diagnosed. And uh, we were sick for so long. But then I realized that it's a nationwide program because for this uh, problem, for this documentary, we talked to people in virtually all the state, all states, and just realized it's a huge problem. What the government is saying and the researchers are saying are the symptoms and the progression of the disease is different than it's in the field. And so the question, the fundamental question I dealt with that is why and then I also, it's the first, uh, it was the first film that really showed the patient perspective, what the patients are going through, the, the stigma that they experience in having this disease, because no one treats it seriously. Uh, uh, so I, I feel like it did a lot of good. It, it made patients feel like they're not so alone. And then it explained why everything is so political and polarized. Uh, and then, then when I finished that, it, it did really well. It won 20 documentary awards. It was an Oscar semifinalist in 2010 when the Cove won about dolphins. And, mm -hmm. and then I thought, well, I'm done. But there were these rumors swirling around when we were doing this documentary. It took three and a half years to film it with that Lyme was a biological weapon. But we could, Andy and I couldn't find anybody to go forward to say that. And we couldn't find any documentation and so I said, well, it's time to move on. I'm better. You know, I found the right kind of doctor who was really knowledgeable with treating tick-borne diseases. We both got better and I was going to move on. And then uh, one of my documentary friends got Willie Bergdorfer to admit that he thought that the outbreak around Lyme disease was related to a biological weapons accident. So he finally decided to come forward. And then I saw this, the CIA black ops guy. I mean, I met him and he, I, interviewed him several times. I found backup document, you know, that we did weaponize ticks, drop them on, on a for, at least one foreign nation. And then that, then I worked backwards and found a lot of the tick experiments that we did in the fifties and sixties to weaponize them, fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes. I, and then that program ended in 72, but all the open air testing had lasting effects on the environment there were accidents as there will be in the military uh, or in any science lab, there can be accidents. And so I, I say those um, open air tests that weren't well controlled, it's like, uh, like an American Chernobyl, the mm. effects just like radiation can last for generations. Did you ever in your career fear talking about stuff like this? Um, for any of your projects or anything that you were getting funded or are, are you still a part of that or are you retired now? Uh, I, I'm, I work for a foundation right now, um, part-time helping with communication and tick-borne disease awareness, invisible international. But um, I, I'm still researching sort of this biological weapons hypothesis that I have trying to nail it. Um, in my spare time, I would say. Yeah. 
has anybody ever do you ever do you fear pushback from that at all or you're just going to do what you got to do and whatever happens happens uh i there were various times i was worried and i it took five years to get the book out and the first three years i kept it close to the vest i was careful about who i mentioned it to and then you know when i realized there was enough evidence to make it into a book then I, I was careful about who I told it to. And then, uh, but I realized people were interested in it and it, it it's important today because, because of the long-term effects of this, these experiments. So I never felt directly physically at risk, but I know people were watching me. <laughs> think, yeah. People were definitely watching me and I had evidence of people, people undercover, questioning me in suspicious waves, ways where I knew they weren't legit. Hmm. That's <laughs> concerning. Um, <laughs> how do you, you, you mentioned um, that you got well from, you know, your d- struggle with uh, Lyme disease. Can you tell us how that, how you did, how you did that? Like what's the, what was the cure for it or what was the treatment for it? Once, yes. once you figured it out. If you go to the Infectious Diseases Society of America, they have treatment guidelines and they say two, two to six weeks of a simple antibiotic can cure Lyme disease. But so many people in the real world, it goes on and on. And, and there are many reasons for that. First of all, we're all different genetically. We all have different, we come to the tick bite with different immune systems. Also, I mean, the, the, one of the conclusions of my book are that that you can get multiple pathogens from a tick bite and they're treated with different antibiotics or antimicrobials. You can get Babesia, which is a cattle parasite, and that takes an anti-malarial drug to cure it. And, and uh, actually, Borrelia burgdorferi, Lyme disease, is, is treated better with penicillin, but they give us uh, doxycycline as a frontline antibiotic because that will hopefully kill the rickettsials like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which can put you in a coma in 14 days. So that's why it really helps to find a doctor who can like sort through the messy symptomology to figure out what you have and then treat, treat you with the right drugs in the right order. And people who are really sick, you have to start treatment very slow or they could, you can get, have toxic shock and die. That sounds like no fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, of all the things that you that you've seen and all of your knowledge and and you know where we are today with COVID and you know where we were with Lyme disease, um, do you think that it's going to get worse for us as a species as far as you know other diseases coming down the road, or um, like what are your feelings on that? Well, when I, when I was immersed in the research in the book, and I went to a lot of lectures at Stanford about biosecurity, and almost everyone who got up in front of these bright Stanford students, the class moderator uh, would ask them, well, what do you most worry about? And they would all say a, a, a COVID-like flu outbreak. Uh, and so it's been on our radar for a long time, and most people felt like we were long overdue for this outbreak. And it's probably about as deadly as the 1918 flu, but we're better at tr- treating these things now. 
Um, so definitely we'll have these kind of outbreaks again and hopefully we'll learn how to deal with it better as we go along. I, I think it was the last four years have been the fake news uh, era. So it is really hard to know whose information is reliable and whose isn't because there was no penalty for just out and out lying about some science, like saying masks don't help. Well, they do help. They're almost better than any hand washing and everything else. Uh, and I, I experienced that with my book. That was an eye opening experience right when it came out, right when it came out, Chris Smith of New Jersey, he's a Republican there, uh, was in a department of defense funding meeting and he held up the book and said, you, you have to read this book, really credible evidence behind a possible biological weapons accident, you know, in the late sixties that caused this whole milieu of tick-borne diseases that exploded pretty much in the mid seventies. And so he's saying, I think we should add to the DOD bill uh, an, ex, uh, an investigation where we publish information on all the insect-borne weapons that we did in the 50s and the 60s. So that was fantastic. It was it, like the interest in my book exploded internationally. Uh, it, it eventually got moved out of the DOD funding bill, but it raised awareness that we did have this extensive program and it would save us research dollars if we could declassify those records. A lot of them have been destroyed. Most of them have been destroyed. And it would really help to know what organisms we released in what areas. And we would only weaponize germs where, where our own soldiers were protected. So what is the research that went into vaccines and treatments for our soldiers for those releases? Yeah, that would be great. One one last question. Well, actually, I got two. Well, one question, and then uh, I want to talk about the book that you you uh, um, referenced here called Baseless. Um, but the one the question that I have is that is it true that we have biological testing laboratories in most um, countries? looking at their local, I mean, cause every, every, like every local area, like every country, they have a different set of, of like organisms and, and bacterias and that are sort of like native to their areas. Right. Yeah. So biological weapons program was officially uh, canceled in 1972 by Nixon and Kissinger. Um, there is still lots of research on defensive protection against other people working on biological weapons. So uh, the experts believe that Russia is working on biological weapons. China is probably Iran. So our scientists have to work on that, those. So that means they have to have small samples in their freezers of those really gnarly select agents is what they're called. And that also means if we ever decided to go offensive, we could just grow them in large quantities and revive our offensive program. But I, you know, I think uh, officially we don't have an offensive biological weapons program. We do do a lot of research offshore because you can do it faster and cheaper and there's less regulations. 
But okay. what, so if you go to COVID, uh, even the government, the ex head of the CDC says, I think that COVID was a lab accident. You know, we know they were working in this Wuhan laboratory. We know they're working on bat viruses. They're working on gain of function where you want to manipulate the DNA to some medical purpose. And it's, it's really hard to contain viruses and they escape out of labs all the time. And so that's experts in the U S that's what they're saying even publicly now, but time will tell China is the most secretive government uh, on the planet now. So uh, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So baseless, is a book um, that you recommended and it's called baseless my search for secrets in the ruins of the freedoms of Infor- freedom of information act and so oh there you go yeah. it's right there yeah. <laughs> there's no need for me to read it yeah i was just gonna read yeah your um listeners one part which i just really liked and uh, it was uh Earl Stevenson, an enthusiastic enthusiast of the wartime bat vector bomb, a cluster of 1,030 live Mexican free-tailed bats fitted with napalm vests who were meant to burst into flame under the eaves of Tokyo houses. So anyways, <laughs> I, my book went down one rabbit hole, which is weaponizing fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes. But Nick Baker's book really captures the breadth and depth of the biological weapons program. And uh, I've had conversations with him, but, you know, it's a really dark thing to research because you can't believe we, we, our country would ever do that kind of thing. But he, he went farther. I just really identified with his, like, I have to know if we did this and how can this be true? And, and uh, just outraged that, this happened and there's been no justice and no reparations on all these things that were done (laughs) and that they're redacted. Uh, He said, he has this one really good quote that redaction is like decapitating history. How can we learn from history if you're going to keep everything secret? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. And so redacted means it's blacked out of of what so they just sort of like selectively release information. Right. So they black out all the names and times and places and uh biological agents and where they did open air testing and so I I use this really good service uh Muckrock and they I've can file freedom of information acts and I've had some in since my documentary that have never been fulfilled. It's just, there's no, there's no teeth to the freedom of information act that says you have to ever release documents. It's frustrating if you're writing history books. Hmm. Almost like it was purposely done. <laughs> huh? Um, I mean, that's, that's, Almost like, so, I mean, we, we go through this. I mean, there's how many laws in California or just laws in general. There's millions, billions of laws out there. And I mean, what's the point of, of having a law if you 
if there's if there's no point to it like you know because with all these laws it takes people to be able to enforce them well it costs money to have people to be able to enforce them so most of them go unenforced right there's no one in these agencies well the cdc is one of the worst (laughs) i waited five and a half years for one foia request and it was just emails i mean if your boss said give me all the emails to this person during this time frame, you could do it in an hour, but it took five and a half years. And mine was the oldest unprocessed Freedom of Information Act. I even won, I was nominated for award for the worst Freedom of Information Act from the CDC. Uh, but the same woman is there and she, no one's, there's no uh, penalty for her to, to hold these requests back. It seems like mine was unpopular. So they just kept on putting it at the bottom of the pile. Hmm. I was just looking for um, conflicts of interest between the CDC people and the academics uh, who patented the test kits and vaccines and seeing if there's a financial relationship. So it's definitely a justifiable request and it was very narrow. So it wasn't frivolous. Hmm. That'd be interesting to see if it ever gets, if it ever gets uh, fulfilled. (laughs) Well, it did. It did. It did. Did okay. Was there any or no? Uh, yeah, there was, and they were violating some of the NIH conflict of interest rules, and it was used as a basis for uh, an investigation by the Connecticut Attorney General into the practices of the Infectious Diseases Society of America and their relationship with the CDC and the NIH. So, yeah, it was it was used as the basis of that lawsuit. Uh, it was settled. But again, the Infectious Diseases Society of America didn't do what they said they would do in the lawsuit. And that politician, who now Senator Blumenthal, had moved on to the Senate. And so there was never a follow through or punishment for the IDSA ignoring that settlement agreement. Yeah, it seems like in all of these cases where, you know, there should be some accountability that criminal criminal prosecution never happens now if there was a threat of jail or prison and people actually followed through with it do you think that maybe you know some of these folks would not do some of these dastardly things <laughs> well definitely definitely i mean because the, the chauvin case there was plenty of cases of police excessive use of force. And then there's one really high profile lawsuit where somebody went to jail. So that will make a difference going forward, but you need one brave soul to take that to the end. There is, there is one lawsuit in the works right now that I have hope for. It's uh, about 20 Lyme patients who were denied antibiotic treatment for what appeared to be Lyme disease cases that could have went from dis- chronically disabling from life because of this under treatment or no treatment or treatment denied. And so um, suing the, the people who publish these guidelines uh, and if that that's going to go to trial, I think in September. And if that, if the patients win the suit, then that'll make a difference. And hopefully the physicians, I mean, you don't want to create an environment where physicians will get sued because most physicians are well-meaning, but hopefully they'll be motivated to look at the evidence because there is a vast body of evidence that say chronic Lyme exists. They've given the equivalent doses of antibiotics 
recommended by the IDSA to monkeys. And then they've autopsied them and said, yeah, there's like live spirochetes in their brain. So it must in some cases go on to be chronic, but nobody's mm. listening to that evidence. We yeah. need better treatments. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, the, the prosecutors and the judges and the police officers, they call that uh, some immunity. It's called a, it's where they're immune from, from, you know, being prosecuted in any way, shape or form. So like, they're not really responsible for anything. You know, they can make bad decisions all day long and never suffer any consequences for it. So once you get that, once you get that out of there, then I think, you know, there's hope for a lot of different things, but it's just like, it's just like saying, okay, well, let's, you know, we all see that having, well, not we all see, but I see that having, uh, you know, term limits and, and all of the stuff that goes along with, you know, the, the making for better government, it's never going to happen because you got to convince those people that are in power to, to, to vote themselves out of work. <laughs> Is that ever going to happen? No. <laughs> so I read this really good science fiction book. I just finished it. Ministry of the future. And it, it's, I think it starts in 2035 when climate change reaches just a tipping point and the whole human race is going to be doomed. And it's about this one like fearsome Irish woman who heads up the ministry of the future. And her job is to figure out how to get these like <laughs> this large lumbering bureaucracies to change in time to save the human race. And the book isn't, the book has just a lot of really interesting ideas on how to do that which includes eco-terrorism, which makes it a good story. But uh, it just made me think about how hard it is to change a system when it's been established this long. It's very money-driven. So you have to change the incentives You uh, from uh, unbridled growth in the economy and depletion of resources and no penalty for destroying the environment and make it profitable to fix all that. And so it's, it's just sort of a thought provoking book. I thought. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I've got a, a, a Toastmasters. I'm in Toastmasters and one of my colleagues in there, he's actually uh, inventing and patented a device that you attach to coal burning stacks and it vacuums out all of the carbon and captures it. And then you can turn that into a, a, uh, some sort of a material that's stronger than some other material. And basically the same, the same thing that, that uh, Rockefeller I think did with kerosene and he turned kerosene, the byproduct of that, which was dangerous and turned it into another product that he can profit off of. And so it's the same sort of concept, but that's, you're gonna have to convince people to bring back coal. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't know if you'll be able to do that. Yeah. But all right. Well, thank you for, I mean, we're at about an hour and, uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show, uh, and, you know, telling us about Lyme disease and giving me a little bit more of clarity on, on what that is and you know, what to look out for. Uh, is there anything that you want to plug or say before we go? I've got your website up here. I've got the link to, um, the under our com for your documentary and you can, I think you can buy it single or you said you can see it free on Amazon prime too though. Right. 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 Or you can watch snippets of it online for free. 
it's an hour and a half featured documentary. So it's a long, it's a lot of sick people, but I, I, of course, I think it's interesting. So I, I, I would say um, the message, the takeaway message on my book that I'd like people to internalize is that in 1968, these three freaky tick-borne diseases just appeared, appearing, appeared out of nowhere and started making people really, really sick. And uh, I go through uh, sort of the suspicious things that make me think that's an unnatural um, uh, outbreak. And I put it in context of a really good human story of Willie Bergdorfer, a, a, a scientist who came over in his late twenties, got sucked into the biological weapons program, did some unspeakable crimes against humanity and the things he developed at a certain point. It, he realized how bad it was and he redeemed himself and he confessed to several journalists that an accident happened. Probably he wouldn't give details. So it wasn't a hundred percent confession, but I, I think we know something went wrong and uh, I go into just how bad tick-borne diseases are. And so if you pull out a tick, take it seriously, put it in a baggie with a damp piece of, uh, paper towel and send it in to get tested because the tick testing I think is better and faster and cheaper than human testing at this point in time. And then you'll know what's in the tick. Pennsylvania Lyme, PA Lyme has free to cheap tick born tick testing. And then if you, um, if you see the bullseye rash, go and get antibiotics right away. Don't wait around to see if you get sick bullseye rash is pretty definitive. And then if you think you have long-term Lyme, find a doctor who really knows what they're doing. So, so you can get to health as quick as possible. And you can find a good doctor on LymeDisease.org, a website. And they have a lot of patient information on how to, uh, how to get insurance coverage for this and what your risks are for ticks in various regions. Uh, and then I, I have a really cool map on my website, chrisnewby.com, that shows the spread over time. It's an animation. So you know sort of roughly what the risk is in your state of that. And, and know that tick, Lyme disease has been found in all 50 states. The CDC set up their numbers last year that says almost 500,000 cases a year of Lyme disease. Think about what a big deal when, when we hit 500,000 cases of COVID. It's a lot of people that are sick. Uh, 1300 on average a day of new cases. So, you know, be your own advocate for your health. And if you think you have tick-borne diseases, treat it seriously. That was great information. Thank you for that. Uh, all that you gave on that. No, seriously, I didn't, uh, I'm, I'm, I really appreciate it. And you stopping by and for being a guest on the show. Uh, this will air on the podcast, like, you know, go to the audio only like Apple, Spotify, all of those in about a month. So I will send you all of the direct links and some promo materials for that. Uh, when that goes up. Great. Great. All right. It's been a uh, pleasure, fun chatting with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry. I hope I didn't get too conspiratorial in, in, my, in my, in my questioning. I just, I, I, my mind goes there because it just seems like too many, like when you, when you just look back far enough that the coincidences, like you don't get that many coincidences, even in your own life. I know. Right. You know? So, I mean, you have to stop and think and go, you know, something's not right. Yeah. 
<laughs> but what? I don't know because it's smoke and mirrors everywhere. Anyways, thanks, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Fun. Have a good evening. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, that was a interesting, interesting episode there. Um, you know, I guess you know sometimes maybe I do just get a little bit conspiratorial and think that everything's a conspiracy. Um, and but God, like I said, I mean, you know, when you really stop and look back and you you start thinking about things and looking a little bit deeper, I mean, it does make you question things. And you know, I think we should be questioning a lot more than we do. So. Anyways, I enjoyed the, the, the broadcast and I hope you did too. Um, the next thing we got, I believe, let me look at my calendar, uh, is next Monday, we've got Dr. Mike Merrill and Mike Wilson and then, uh, Dan Reeves, who's from the spiritual underground podcast, who I did a three and a half hour episode on his show when I was on his podcast. So, and that was probably the best uh, rendition of my story to date. Uh, I don't think we'll be able to get uh, three and a half hours on the concrete podcast. I think two is about the the limit there. Um, I haven't seen any uh, that go past that. There may be a couple, but uh, so I'm going to have to work on shortening down my story so I can get everything into it. At least the, the most, uh, the most uh, important, impactful parts of it. So, yeah, I appreciate everybody out there. Uh, if you're a longtime listener or listening at all, man, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, it's great to know that people are paying attention to the things that I'm, I'm, you know, talking about and the people that I'm bringing onto the show. And uh, if you got any um, suggestions or if you want to reach out to me in any way, what shape, any way shape or form go ahead and email the show at nowhere to go but up now at gmail.com uh if you want to connect to the show in any other way uh go to my link tree right now is the best way to do it that's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash nowhere to go but up uh website's coming it's in the process and hopefully when that's done that's all i'll be able to put in you can find everything on the website so uh, until next Monday, uh, keep it 100, stay true to yourself. Everything else is just noise. See ya. You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.